Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and I'm here today uh, with my colleague, uh, formerly of the Tufts Admission Office, graduate of Carleton College, resident of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah. Is that, is that a good lead in? We got Becky Lightling right. <laughs> here on the show today. Um, Becky, I'm going to come to you in a second. I just want to let all of our listeners know that we've got a great show lined up. We're going to spend some time talking about early action and early decision, both from an admission standpoint and from a college finance standpoint. So you want to stick around for the next two segments of the show. Um, we're going to start today, though, in talking about the University of California system. And particularly, we want to focus on the essays. Now, um, Becky and I have been at College Coach for me, seven years. You, eight years. You're always N plus one, wherever I am. <laughs> and uh, we both started in our Palo Alto office. So we have a lot of familiarity with the University of California system. The essays, I think, have been the same for as long as we've been here with College Coach. Do you remember any changes? No, no the UCs used to have two long essays. And then they oh, right. flipped to the short essays, maybe, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago. I'm glad but we keep you around. Yeah, I forgot then. about that. Yeah, that's that's great. And things are always changing with the UCs. We just got word. Yeah. I, I can't break news on a podcast that's going to air a week from today. But um, the University of California system is in a situation now where a judge has ordered that they cannot consider SAT or ACT scores. I think the UCs are still in a position where they're trying to determine whether to challenge that. But it sounds like at least UC Berkeley is going to move forward without considering those scores for this fall of 2020 admission for fall 2021. Um, Becky, what's your sense of how that's going to change the importance of the essays? Do they become more important? Is this something that students should think about as having a bigger role in the process now? Um, my gut response is no, because I think in the previous process, students over-rely or overestimate the value of testing. Um, and so I think the absence of testing probably normalizes the, the weight of essays and activities and grades for students in a way that already for admissions officers. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a great observation. I, I, I feel like historically with the UCs, I felt like they've been much more driven by um, grades and courses in, in terms of just the outcomes that I've seen for students than testing. So I've seen a lot of students with really strong testing, but mediocre grades that have not found success that they thought they were going to get at certain UCs. And so uh, I, I think you might be right that that this is probably a smaller piece of the puzzle than we've ever thought. Um, and, and now that it's gone, it's still not going to change the overall landscape all that much. The UCs um, have always been so transparent with their 14 factors for comprehensive review. That's right. And they still are practicing that. Um, and so I hope more than ever students believe it and put time and effort and care into their essays um, because they they should ho have always been doing so. Yeah, Becky Likeling, you better believe it, right? That's like, <laughs> that's your tagline. Um, okay, so let's talk about the actual essays. And we've, we've talked about the UC essays before. So if you wanna go and listen to sort of a 
piece by piece breakdown of each of the eight personal insight questions. You can look back into our archives. I want to do some sort of quick hits here uh, with Becky for today. Um, the first thing I want to just start with, do you have a favorite among the eight personal insight questions? One that you like the best? I don't um, because I truly, genuinely, fully love all of these. I love the UC essays. I think they are hands down the best approach to essays. I have all my students start here. Whether or not they're applying to the UCs, I think this is great fodder for brainstorming because they ask so many different questions in so many different ways that every young person, in theory, can say, oh, yes, this one makes sense for me. I hear a good answer for myself here. Um, so I, I I don't actually have a favorite question, but I think that you do, Ian. I, what is your favorite question? No, I mean, I didn't ask that question just so I could say what my favorite is. Um, I, I actually, I, I think I do, I like the creative side essay the most mm-hmm. um, among the group, just because I think that there is some real potential there. Um, a lot of students sort of box themselves into thinking, am I artistic? Am I musical? Do I make things that are beautiful? And I have seen students use this prompt to describe the ways that they engage with things like computer science or the methods that they use to interact with their peers um, in a way that I think can be really exciting. So I I just like that the way that this particular essay is, um, this question is phrased, um, how do you express your creative side, has this potential to open up a lot of different possibilities with students. And it's that flexibility, I think, in in assessing what a prompt can be that that, that is really great. Um, for students? I actually, when I think of how I would have answered these prompts as a 17-year-old, I would have not at all responded to that one because I would have never thought of myself as creative. That's not one of the you know, ways I would put myself in a box, even mm-hmm. though on paper I have done creative things. And I I, I'm sh- I, I believe that I'm a you know creative problem solver, but it, it just the word creative doesn't resonate with me given yeah. how I see myself. So I agree with everything you said about the flexibility of that prompt. And I see that across all of these. Um, and I think uh, I, I do encourage my students not to zone in too much on a literal definition of yeah. one of the supporting subtext questions because you can't answer that specific question. Doesn't mean you should avoid the entire prompt from a different angle. And actually I think I think we actually might even have a difference of opinion about one of these questions. Um, really? Okay. Yeah. I was like reading them through and I was like, oh, I like this one. I recall a conversation among some of our coworkers a few weeks back about prompt number five, which okay. is describe the most significant challenge you have faced and the steps mm-hmm. you've taken to overcome this challenge. How has this challenge affected your academic achievement? Mm-hmm. I feel personally totally willing to ignore the second sentence of that question. The academic achievement piece. Yeah. Interesting. I, when I when I listen to this question and I think about significant challenge you have faced, steps, overcoming, I feel like this speaks to resilience and bravery and empathy and self-confidence and a mm. whole host of really foundational, powerful, inherent traits that are, that are valuable. Mm. And if a student has a story to tell and feels like these experiences resonate with them, mm. I wouldn't discourage them from responding to that prompt simply because it didn't affect their grades. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I tend to look at that academic piece. And I think that it's not, it's not always that you see a difference in grades. It's not always that it's reflected in a test that was failed or a challenge for a particular subject. It might just be 
I had to shift around certain priorities that I had because of a challenge that I was experiencing. And I actually was brainstorming with a student just yesterday. And he was talking about um, a moment where his grandmother had died and his entire family, except for him, had to leave the country to go to the funeral. And so he was in a position where it was finals week and he had to study for his finals while being aware that his grandmother had just passed. And he was also in a position where I got nobody here to cook me meals and make sure I get to school and all those pieces. And so um, I think the academic piece for me can be an anchor that allows mm -hmm. students to sort of think about, okay, what's the effect of this on my overall engagement with my school, my family, et cetera. Whereas if a student doesn't necessarily consider that academic piece, sometimes I think they can float away and think about challenges that might not necessarily have as much of a bearing on the application process. Um, you know, I suppose it's sort of a know it if, when you see it kind of thing. Um, yeah. I, I, I think what the big problem with this prompt is that it sort of feeds an assumption that we see from a lot of students that they have to write about an obstacle. Mm -hmm. um, and so you'll see us a lot of students that say, okay, well, I got to respond to number five because they want to read that. Um, what's your take on just questions here that need to be answered versus questions here that are just one among many on a menu of options? Um, I totally, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And when I have students who are gravitating towards prompt five, cause they think they're supposed to, mm -hmm. um, I like to pause and say, Hey, if you have gotten to this point in your life without having to navigate significant trauma, that mm -hmm. is a gift. I think that's wonderful. Let's acknowledge that and have gratitude and figure out what else is also really valuable about your lived experience so far. That's right. Um, and this is not a competition for who has it worse. And if that's the way you're thinking about it, I think that's not a battle you want to win and isn't one you should try to fight, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I totally agree. It's like, there's this, we like gossiping. We like hearing, oh, someone else did something wrong. I, I don't know what it is about people, us, me, you, that that resonates with like wanting to know how things are bad, but in the context of college admissions, people want to celebrate how you are growing. Yeah. And even in an essay, like the one you described, I'm, I am so sorry for that student's loss. And that must've been so challenging for him. And as the reader who's removed from the, the immediate pain of that loss, I'm still reading to celebrate how this young person is thriving and learning. That's right. That's and right. so I need to understand the backstory, the context of what has been the challenge so that I can appreciate who he is becoming. Mm -hmm. I think you're exactly right on that. Um, are there essay prompts here that, that pose sort of similar potential traps, um, you know, pitfalls, ways that I think students could fall into an expectation that they need to respond to something or that they need to respond to something in a particular kind of way? Me, that's prompts one and seven. One okay, is one for sure. describe yes. an example of your leadership experience. Yeah. And seven is what have you done to make your school or community a better place? Mm -hmm. And I think this is also the buzzwords of leadership and community service feel so ingrained to the American college admissions process. Um, kids think they're supposed to and that it's supposed to look right. a certain way. Right. And so I think I actually have read some of my least compelling essays in those two responses because a student probably should have been thinking about it in a different way or writing about something else. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, one of the things that I come back to when I talk to students, especially about prompt number one, but also with number seven, if the mission of the essay you've written is to get something across that already exists in your activities list. So you're writing an essay because you were the president of a club. 
Well, you know what? That's already on your activities list. They're going to know about that. So is there some story that you need to tell about your particular brand of leadership? Or are you just writing this essay to underscore the fact that you're the president? I think you want to trust that they're going to have that information and only write the leadership essay if you have more to share that goes in great detail beyond the title that you had. Same is true of community service. You don't need to write this essay to tell me you did community service if it's elsewhere in your application. And the UCs have a robust extracurricular activity section where you can write a lot actually about each of your service activities. So make sure that you're going in greater detail with these essays in order to wield, especially numbers one and seven. Um, Focusing on specific prompts, what about number eight? Eight is what... Above everything else, I, I don't know the exact phrasing, but above everything else, what makes you a strong candidate for admission to the UC? I think this might be another one where we might have a difference of opinion. I hope so. It's more <laughs> interesting for our listeners. If, if <laughs> yeah. To me, this is topic of your choice. Yes. Right? The, the UC doesn't know what to ask in order to allow every individual young person to be able to show their most compelling traits. And so this is, hey, what do we not know to ask? Just tell us that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel overwhelmed by the, the language of what makes you stand out as a strong candidate. To me, that's just because they had to figure out words to ask, tell us something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think students need to feel pressure to be unique or to be best or to be strong. So like, just tell us what I, I need to know that I, I haven't already heard. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I joked with um, a couple of powerlifters that this would be a great spot for them to talk about their powerlifting experience because of the word strong. Um, hmm. But they both rejected that proposal and, and rightly so. <laughs> I was just kidding. Um, so so I want to hear a little bit about your approach for actually selecting topics for students and how you recommend that they go about this. And actually, when I do it, I have students go through only prompts one through seven. I have them kind of ignore number eight. I think that that's something that I'll have them propose an idea for it. If nothing else really fits that, that we've identified as an important part of their experience. But I really have them look at, at prompts one through seven. How do you, you sort of alluded to this, I think, in the initial conversation about how students look at the different prompts, but how do you actually engage with this question of choosing the right prompts uh, for a particular student? So I do pretty much the same thing, but I include number eight because I think so often people have an idea in their head they've been thinking hmm. about and maybe one of their friends said it's like I want to hear that I don't want to dance around it for three drafts until we figure out you you did actually want to talk about this thing so I include number eight and I have all my students even if they're not applying to the UCs at all I give them these eight prompts and I say come up with eight ideas it doesn't have to be one per essay it could be hmm. two different ideas about leadership two different ideas, but I want to hear eight possible things that you could talk about given the long list of questions and sub questions that are here. Um, and I encourage them in their brainstorming to identify a message. What is the purpose of my telling this story? A so what? And a vehicle, which is what anecdotes, experiences, data am I going to share so that I convey the message? Mm-hmm. And the drama of junior year on the soccer team is the vehicle to deliver the personal growth of whatever happened because of that. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people that essays are about two things. So he's got the surface level topic, which is what you tell your aunt and uncle you're writing your essay about. And then you've got the deeper topic, which is the takeaway that the admission officer is going to grab from reading it. Um, I have students write two ideas for each of the first seven prompts. And what we do is we sort of rank the top four from among that group. And so you might find, for example, that your two best essays are both for the creative prompt, but you can only write one of them. So you're actually going to pick the third best topic 
because it fits another another prompt in some cases. So there's a little bit of strategy that's that's done there. Um, in terms of that strategy, I, you know, I heard from one of our colleagues around students who are interested in STEM, particularly engineering or CS, that there is a specific prompt that they should respond to and that they should address their interest in that field. Uh, do you share that? And, and which prompt do you think might be the best way to convey an interest in, in STEM? I do encourage students who are applying to engineering to make sure that somewhere in their suite of four essays, they address head-on content related to their STEM pursuits. So mm -hmm. the, the service topic you talk about with your aunt and uncle, the vehicle. But I also am listening for, reading for the subcontext that shows a thinker who approaches the world from an engineering perspective. And mm -hmm. so the creative prompt might be the one that delivers an engineering mindset, someone who is approaching a problem from a million different angles and is excited about everything that doesn't work because it gives them an opportunity to try it again in a new way. Yeah. That that's great. It doesn't have to take place in robotics club. That's um, right. But I do think that's an important thing for engineering applicants is to make sure that that suite of four essays somewhere strongly conveys their readiness for the intellectual and process oriented pursuit of engineering study. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I've actually seen more of my engineering students have gone with that creative prompt as a way of talking about their pursuits. I think a lot of students gravitate toward number six, which is taught mm -hmm. to talk about an academic subject that inspires you and how you've addressed it inside and outside the classroom. And I'll just say that one of the major pitfalls there is that it can start to feel like a list. I'm listing all of the things that I've done in this space, and, and that can sometimes hold you back. When I, I wonder whether you, I mean you and I both have a particularly narrow regional perspective on this. Silicon Valley is the heart of computer science innovation or has been for a long mm -hmm. time. And I have read a lot of essays in response to prompt number six, where a young person had access to great computer science coursework early in their high school career that then extended into computer science pursuits. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard way to differentiate your intellectual readiness and sure your yeah. enriching experiences. So I think I wouldn't lean on number six, the academic subject, as a crutch, as the only way to convey that I have studied this thing already. Cool. I think that's great, Becky. Um, we're out of time. <laughs> we haven't, we didn't touch apologies to number two, number four. <laughs> I think that's the only one, the only ones we didn't touch. They're great. They're all great topics. We love these suite of essays. I always have my students start with them. I know you do too, Becky. Um, they're fantastic. And I want to thank you for coming. You're fantastic. Thanks for being Thanks on the for show. Me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Um, when we come back from the break, we are going to talk to Julia Jones about early decision and early action. So don't go away. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. 
To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, folks. Uh, welcome back to this week's edition of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We are recording this episode on September 10th. It's going to air September 17th, and you may be listening to this on a podcast at some point between the 17th and the middle to end of October. And this is a great time for us to start thinking about the role of early decision and early action in your college application plan. So uh, for those of you who are watching this video on YouTube, you can see that I've got Julia Jones here uh, to join me to talk about this. Julia, hey, welcome to the show today. Hey, Ian, how are you? I'm doing really well. Uh, it's, it's good to have you here and, and to unpack, I think, a topic that we speak about all of the time. Um, it's something that to us, I think, can be very clear, but I think it, it creates a lot of challenges for families to understand when is the appropriate time to use early action? How should I think about early decision? And especially some of the, I hate to use this word, but some of the strategy that can be associated with that. And I think um, I, we want to unpack a little bit of that in this segment for today. So maybe we can just start with definitions, um, because I think that's one of the, the clearest spaces where people can get confused. So let's just start with early action. Do you want to give us a definition for early action? Sure. Um, early action is, I think, a little easier to unpack. Um, it is basically an early notification and an early application plan, right? So you are, the deadlines can vary, um, but typically they are early November, early to mid-November. And mm -hmm. you, so you're putting in an application in, you know, kind of on the, on the early side. Um, and you, in return, you hear earlier. So you can hear anywhere from mid-December to late December, even early January in some cases, but definitely before, you know, April and before a lot of the other regular decisions um, come back. So, um, yeah. And so what are, given that it's earlier um, and you've got to sort of get your stuff together a little bit earlier, you've got to apply earlier than maybe you would otherwise, sometimes a full two months ahead of time. What are the advantages to applying early action? Why would a student take advantage of, of that early action option? Right, right. Well, I think the obviously the biggest advantage is you you get some decisions in early. Um, you know, in some cases they might be it might be a nice holiday gift to get that acceptance right before the holidays. Yeah. Um, so so I think you do hear earlier, and I think that you know, in, from a college perspective and from a strategy standpoint, um, you know, you're showing a college that you are ready, that you are you know interested enough in them to get your application in, you know, on the early side. So, um, and it gives, so it gives colleges, you know, I think they appreciate it for a lot of reasons, um, you know, knowing that you're interested, being able to make some decisions and get, you know, especially those, uh, you know, students that they really want in their class, you know, giving them that notification early, it gives them more time to then recruit you and just, you know, right. to woo you, you know, once they've sent those, those decisions out. So. That's right. Yeah. yeah. From the standpoint of the college, it gives them sort of an early glance at what the applicant pool is going to look like in general. We, we don't typically see a much different pool, I think, in early action versus regular decision. It might be a little bit stronger, but that typically doesn't have any negative impact on the students that are applying. Um, I do think that as contrasted with early decision, which we'll talk about, early action doesn't typically give the student a leg up in terms of the admission decision, or if there is one, it's, it's fairly small. Um, so early action, you're probably going to have about the same chances of getting in early action as you would regular decision for a given school that offers both rounds. 
Um, are there any drawbacks, Julia, that you see to applying early action for a particular student? Really more of a question of readiness too. Mm -hmm. I think for some students, you know, if you're not ready to apply early action, um, because it is it is accelerating the process. So, um, you know, you might want to, to take more time with your essays. You know, you don't want to rush the process. And so, um, you know, there's no point in getting an application, you know, out there if, if you really feel like you could have used that extra month or so to, to really perfect it. Um, the other possibility is that, you know, for students who really want senior grades and senior year to count more in the process, um, it, you know, the, the, the downside to early action for some students is that, you know, they're not going to see much of any of your senior year, you know, your senior report cards aren't even out yet. So for sure. the first quarter. So, so I think for some students, if they feel like, you know, I really am have, I'm, you know, maybe junior year was a great year. Um, and I want, I want to see that trend. I, I think colleges are going to really want to see that trend then yes, I think it, it, there's some, some value to perhaps waiting. Um, and I think also, you know, this year, especially with all the uncertainty around testing, yeah. testing can sometimes have, you know, it, they may, you may not be able to take testing if you're, if you're hoping that that's going to be a part of the process, that too can, you know, maybe an argument for, for holding off. I think it's worthwhile to also just explore that, you know, the decision that you get from early action is not binary. So it's not just in or out, but there's also a possibility for a postponement or a deferral. Um, and so what that means is a school gets your application and they decide either they need more information from you. And that could sometimes be fall grades. Um, maybe it could be test scores. If you've indicated that you're planning to take a test, but you haven't reported scores yet. Um, Maybe it's just wanting to see what the strength of the pool looks like overall, right? A college might say, we don't know if this student is going to be competitive in the regular round. And so we're going to postpone that student and reconsider when we see the entirety of that regular round. And I think that the availability of that postponement, that deferral is really great because it helps to give some confidence to students that even if they're not accepted, they might still have an opportunity to get in during that regular decision round. Um, and I think if we talked about what to do between that decision and, you know, in the spring, we'd probably fill up the whole segment. So we're, yeah, we'll, we'll leave that segment. for another day. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about, there's a very rare round of early action called restrictive early action. It's only offered by a very small handful of schools. Do you want to explain just briefly what that looks like? Sure. And it's, it looks a little different from school to school, but essentially, well, you're not committing to a school if you're applying early action, um, regardless of whether it's restricted or not. You're still right. open and allowed to you know, compare all of your acceptances, all of your awards, um, and, and make your final choice in May. But restricted early action basically means that you cannot apply to as you know, all school's early action. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, what, what they're basically saying is that you're not committing to us to, you don't have to attend, but you cannot apply to any other schools early. Um, you're really right. just committing to right. us in terms of the, you know, the early application. Um, with some exceptions, there are some schools that allow you to apply to your, to public universities or universities that may have an early deadline for scholarship. But mm -hmm. for the most part, you know, if you're applying to like, say, for example, Stanford that has a restricted early action, you're, you, that's the only early school that you're really going to be allowed or private university that you're going to be allowed to apply to. Right. And this is a policy that is offered at Stanford, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Um, I, th I think I'm those are- Princeton is doing that this year, but yeah, I think- I, it, Princeton, it's, it's, I, they might not be doing it this year, but historically have. And so yeah. 
you can sort of see just by virtue of which schools offer it, what the objective is. The objective is that those schools don't want to compete with each other for the same kids. And so they're basically deciding you can choose one of the four of us, but not all of us. And that is a little bit of an opportunity for that school to know that that student is their first, that that's their first choice. Um, and to start that recruitment process a little bit earlier, as you mentioned, Julia, um, you touched on some priority deadlines, uh, which are not early action or early decision, but just deadlines to hit if you want to be considered for scholarships. It's a great idea to do those wherever you can. And then there's also a rolling admission process. I just wanted to touch on that just ever so briefly before we turn to early decision. Do you want to sort of just describe the rolling admission opportunity? Sure, sure. Rolling admission is basically, you know, there's no set deadline. There might be a final or a deadline or a priority deadline, but basically colleges just open up the application process on a certain date. Often it's in early fall. Um, and anytime from that moment on, you can put in an application. And at, when you do, when your application is complete, they start reviewing your application and we'll make a decision and we'll get a decision back to you within a set time frame, usually 10 10 weeks or so, give or take uh, a few weeks. So it, it can be, again, and it's another way of hearing from a school early. Um, typically schools that do rolling admission, they're admitting really, you know, all the way through, but I, but it is to most students benefit to apply on the early side of that equation yeah. um, for more competitive schools, for more competitive majors, they're, they're admitting until they're full. So if you are waiting until, you know, March of your senior year, technically you can still get your application in, but there may not be space available at that point. So right. the so, analogy yeah. I like to use is imagine there's a house party and they've got capacity for a hundred people. If you show up right when the party starts, there's more room inside. So they're more likely to let you in. But if you wait yeah. until late, they might say, ah, we've only got room for five more people in here. And you don't look like you've showered lately. So take a walk, right? Um, maybe that's just yeah. me. So that's rolling. Um, let's talk about early decision because I think this is where a lot of confusion obtains. I think it's where um, there's a lot of stress because it is a committed binding process, right? Do you want to describe just the way early decision works um, from the standpoint of, of the students, both in terms of the deadlines and then also their obligation to the schools? Sure. Um, it's very similar in, in many ways to early action in terms of just the timeline and the deadlines. The mm -hmm. deadlines are sometimes almost, they can be identical or, you know, just same, same idea. November-ish, right. you hear um, early in, you know, usually in December. Um, the biggest difference is the commitment level that you're making to the school. So, you know, you are based, unlike early action where you can you can wait and, and make your final choice much later and compare awards, for early decision, you are essentially signing a contract with the school. It's mm -hmm. a binding agreement that states, yes, you're my first choice. And if I'm admitted, I will attend. Right. Period. The end. So, right. you know, we're taking all others and all of that. So I, I you know, that's the biggest change um, and the biggest difference. I think you can only obviously apply to one early decision school and um, or at least one at a time. One at there a time. Right. That, right. There are schools that have early decision round two, which is a little bit later. It's typically in January. And, um, you know, same idea, though. You hear a little bit earlier, but the trade off is you, you have to you have to attend. So. That's right. And there are financial sort of implications here. We're going to talk about that in our next segment with our college finance experts. So we'll leave that untouched here, but you'll want to come back and listen to that final segment to hear more about it. Um, but I do want to sort of talk about that early decision 
round one and round two, I think some people get a little confused about that. Um, from the standpoint of a student looking at ED1, ED2, can they apply to both? And in and, and what circumstance would they want to do so? You can. Um, you can apply to both. I think that's kind of what they're designed for in some ways. Um, I, I think that it's typically, you know, obviously it's your first choice. So if you, you know, it's the same idea, the same concept of decisions when you get um, as it would be for early action. So you have either if you're accepted early action round one, that's it. You're done. Mm -hmm. um, you can celebrate and and uh, be happy. Early, and early decision. If you're accepted early, early decision. Early round. decision. Yeah. Right. Um, if you are not accepted early decision round one, you're going to get a same as early action, kind of one of two possible outcomes. You might be deferred into the regular admission pool, in which case that commitment is no longer present. So you right. are now just treated as a regular applicant. Um, or you might be in some cases, denied or dis admission, um, if they know that it's just not going to be possible even later on, they want to let you off the hook. Um, and, and that's so, final. You can't yes. reapply regular decision. You can't reapply for early decision round two. If you're denied in an early round, you're denied for that, for that year, year. It is done yeah. exactly. And so, and that frees you up in both cases, whether you're deferred or denied, you have the option. Then, if you um, have a second first choice, mm -hmm. um, you can apply early round two for some schools and some schools, some students will look at that and say, okay, so if I don't get into, you know, school a early decision round one, I'm going to go and, you know, do, do this other school for round two. Um, some students also use round two as just their way. They may not be ready. As we talked about yeah. earlier with early action, they may not be ready for, for the November deadline, but they still want to do early decision. Um, and so round two can be, can be a way to do that. So why would a student choose to apply early decision? And especially at a school, you know, because some schools offer early action, early decision one, early decision two. Some even offer an early action two. Now, there are a lot of possibilities, and you can see those things simultaneously at the same institution. Usually schools will have some subset of these. But let's say I'm a, school, I'm a student and I love a school. I know it's my first choice. They offer both early action and early decision. They have the same deadline. Why would I choose early decision over early action? Well, I think, first of all, you have to think about it from a standpoint of, okay, is it your first choice? Yes. If it's not your first choice, I, you know, or, and you're really not sure, you, you want to take a step back. Um, right. But if it is your first choice, and, um, and it also is a school that might be a little harder to get into. So you might be a little bit below the average. So it's a reach. Mm -hmm. Um, in that way, um, it's a, there is, that's where you, the strategy comes in that you mentioned earlier. So, mm -hmm. you know, from unlike early action, early decision for colleges, you know, for them, it's a win as well. You, you know, you're a hundred percent guaranteed that you're going to be in their class. Right. Um, and there's so much, you know, they're going to be competing and recruiting students in the spring. Um, the, the fewer students they have to worry about, the better, the more, you know, so I think that's for colleges. And it's also a positive colleges love to see students who are, you know, yeah. making that kind of commitment. I they're mean, you know, sure. um, so yeah. So I, I think that that's really the strategy that you can use. And that's why students often do that. But I often caution students to say, you know, I've got to apply ED somewhere. Ooh. That's not necessarily yeah. the approach to have because you don't know if you're going to have a first choice. And, and right. especially this year, that's harder to discern because, you haven't necessarily been able to visit every school and to make that final choice. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of like deciding that you're going to go out car shopping and you're, I'm going to leave today, the end of the day with a car. 
And whether a good deal comes out or not, you sort of are, okay, well, I guess I'm going to choose one. And you don't want to lock yourself into that sort of pre-commitment unless you're ready to do so. You want all the information at your fingertips. You want to be completely prepared to be able to commit. And that takes some time. It takes some consideration. And it's not right for everyone. And so I have heard a lot of students that are like, I got to figure out my ED school. And I always have to remind them, look, you might not have one. And that's fine. Um, I talked to a student just last week who was trying to consider different ED options. And I said, well, what's your first choice? And she said, University of Washington. And I said, well, Washington doesn't offer ED. They don't offer EA. They only offer RD. And so if you apply ED somewhere else, you'll never get to find out if you got into Washington, you'll never get yeah. the chance to attend. So ED is not for you. And we yeah. decided, okay, we're not going to do the ED. So, you know, I think you really want to think about, first of all, where does your, your heart and your interest lead you? And then we can sort of think about how different rounds of admission opportunities might give you the best chance of getting into the schools that you want to get into. But we don't want the strategy to lead the decision here. We want our preferences to lead that decision. Um, 100%, yeah. Any sort of final tips that you would give uh, just in the you know last few seconds here, uh, Julia? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you've said is exactly right. And that's the advice I give every student is, you know, making sure that, you know, your your whatever policy and whatever plan you have for both early action, early decision, it's got to make sense for what you're looking for and what's going to be a good fit for you, you know, it, and also your own timeline too. Um, you know, yeah. whether that means, you know, whatever that means in terms of, you know, getting the applications done, you know, um, and, and getting them right too. And so in some ways that, for early act, for many students, early action, early decision can be can be a good way to do that. But in some students, they need they want the extra time. So definitely um, take the time that you need, and and also make the right choice in terms of you know if you're committing to a school, make sure it's for the right reasons too. That's right. That's yeah. right. Team right reasons. Um, so that's a great place to leave it. Uh, <laughs> we've addressed the admission side. We're going to talk about the finance side in just a moment. Julia, thanks a lot for coming on the show today and and helping our our listeners to understand this a little better. Thanks for having me. Take care. You got it. Folks, we'll be right back, so don't go away. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Um, we've had a great conversation so far today on getting in. We talked a little bit about the UC essays and how you can approach topic selection for the California system. We also discussed some of the admissions implications for using early action or early decision 
when you apply to colleges this fall. And what we want to do now is talk a little bit about the financial considerations that might come into play when we are looking at an ED or an EA option. And joining me to talk through all of the different permutations that might come up uh, is my colleague from College Finance, uh, Beth Feinberg-Keenan. Hey, Beth, how are you? I'm great, Ian. How are you today? I'm doing really well. I've had a great show so far, um, and we're really excited to have you here, um, you know, bat and clean up. So um, <laughs> let's talk about financial aid, because I think this is one of the places where on my side of the desk, I say ED or EA, and then I sort of put a huge asterisk there where I want them to talk to someone who knows their stuff like you to actually talk about the financial aid piece. So let's start with ED, because I think ED is the space where there is the greatest source of confusion. Um, If I apply ED to a college, does that improve my chances of getting financial aid from that particular school? And that's a great question. You know, I actually had this exact conversation with a family uh, last night that I, that I uh, was working with, and it really doesn't. Um, in my experience, colleges, even though they haven't spent any of their money yet, uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to spend all of their money on ED students. So it doesn't mean that you're going to get a better financial aid package um, if you decide to apply early decision. Uh, My recommendation is that you want to really make sure that you're doing your homework and making sure that the school is a good financial fit for your family if you're going to be going forward and applying early decision. Gotcha. And and, um, what are some of those resources? I mean, the, the concept of a financial fit is a great concept. And I think when we talk about fit for a college, we're talking about you know, the feel of the campus and the academic programs and, and faculty as mentors or whatever a, a student is looking for. But financial fit is in some ways a, an even more important question. Um, how do you investigate that financial fit question for a given set of schools? So there's a couple tools that families can use to investigate financial fit. One of the tools that I like to use is the college's net price calculator. Um, I was doing that for a family last night. They're applying um, early decision to a college. While I have an idea of what it might expect, you know, what they might be expected to pay for college, I wanted to get a better sense of, hey, you're applying to this university. What does that mean in terms of how much it's going to cost your family? What are you going to be anticipate? What are you going to be expected to pay for a year of college? So running the college's net price calculator is one of those tools that can help a family determine. What is their price tag going to be at that institution? Is that something that they're able and willing to pay? So I think that's one of the better tools that families can use. Uh, Students and families can also use something like an expected family contribution calculator on the college board website, get an idea, you know, is our, based on our income and our assets, are we going to qualify for financial aid? You know, how much is school going to think that we can afford for college? And then Asking questions. I think that's also another great resource. Uh, I think that if you're a family who's not going to qualify for any type of need-based financial assistance, uh, doing your research, looking at the college's websites, having conversations with folks in the admissions office, what are average scholarships that you've given out? What's the typical profile of a student who was offered a scholarship this past year? And then if they want to further investigate in terms of 
you know, what do we need to do in order to have that scholarship renewable uh, year after year? Yeah. We've also found too that depending on the school, you know, some schools are willing to uh, do an early read. So it might be just a matter of reaching out to the college and asking the school, you know, based upon maybe a family has some type of you know, unique circumstances, special circumstances, that they're really trying to decide if early decision is the best for them. Maybe a school is willing to do some type of early read calculation based on that special circumstance that that right. family is experiencing. So the worst they're going to say, Ian, hey, we don't do that, but they're going to be able to help guide the family, and also give some tools and resources that are going to be able to help the family make that informed decision. You know, I can tell you that the admission office is never going to do that. But um, <laughs> for that, that's a great tip. I had no idea that college finance offices were so willing to be supportive in some cases um, to do that early read. So it certainly doesn't hurt to ask. Um, now, you sort of mentioned the profile of students that are typically going to be awarded scholarships at a given school. And I think that a question that I often hear from families is, if I apply early decision, what's the incentive for a college to give me that scholarship? I have to attend. So, you know, let's say there are students that have my GPA and my test scores and my profile that are typically offered a, a really nice recruitment scholarship. Uh, are they going to give that to me under the ED round? So, and I think that, I mean, you make a great point. I mean, as I mentioned in the beginning, I mean, colleges aren't going to spend all of their money, but if you're a strong student and you would have been a scholarship recipient if you applied early action or if you applied regular decision, it's likely that you're still going to get a scholarship applying early decision. The piece that you're losing applying early decision along with the scholarship piece is you're losing the ability to compare scholarships from other institutions that you might have been accepted to if you hadn't applied ED. But I don't think you're necessarily hurting your chances of getting a scholarship applying ED. And I don't think that a school is necessarily going to offer you less money um, if you apply you know, ED. But I don't think they're necessarily, I mean, they're not gonna go out with all of their money and say, okay, you know, we're, we're gonna spend all of our money on ED students. Because you know, colleges today, in my experience, I mean, they wanna make sure that they are yielding a class and often colleges have a goal of what percentage of their class that they want to yield from early decision applicants to. Yeah, and and I think I mean that, that's a great point. I think that the comparison is the piece where you don't necessarily know what those different offers are going to look like. And you know, you can do a net price calculator. And I, I believe, if I'm correct, sometimes these net price calculators will even predict recruitment scholarships for students that can put in some of their academic information and get get some results there. Um, but you know, it, it's good to know that you know sometimes the comparison really is helpful, and some families really want to be able to look at a variety of different packages. And so, the only reason I think to be overruled there is if you're pretty confident in what you think that this ED school can offer you, and it's your clear, clear top choice where you are willing to potentially pay a little bit more for that school without having the opportunity to consider other options. Um, what are some other things that you think families just should generally pay attention to? I mean, we always sort of say, you know, if it works out financially, you should apply ED if it's your first choice. Are there some other things that you encourage families to kind of think about when it comes time to think about that ED option? Well, I think Ian, you mentioned it. You know, I think that you mentioned if this is really the school that, you know, the student wants to go to and the family is willing to pay that price, is 
you know, are you going to pay for that school no matter what it costs you? But also knowing that if it doesn't work out financially for the family, that if they decide to not go to that institution, they can't go back to that institution later and say, you know what, we kind of got similar offers at other schools after we already backed out of ED. Mm-hmm. And we got similar offers at other schools. And we really want to go to that, you know, we really want our you know son or daughter to go to that school. Unfortunately, at that point in time, I mean, if you've already pulled out and said, you're not going to go there, the school's not going to say, sure, no problem. You know, yeah, we're, we'll you welcome know. you back with open Yeah, arms. we'll welcome no, you I back. Don't, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> the other piece that you're, you know, the other thing that families have to realize too, is you're really losing the, the ability to compare offers and potentially negotiate better, um, better scholarships, better aid packages from a college, um, unless there's been a change in circumstances. I mean, if there's been a change in circumstances, by all means, you can go back to the financial aid office. Still, you can let them know uh, there's been a change and they're willing to work with you. But you can't go back to the school and say, you know what? I got a better offer from this institution. Can you increase the financial aid package? Because you're going to likely have nothing to compare it to. Right. It doesn't mean that you can't go back to the school and say, hey, is there anything else better that you can do for us? Because you still have the ability to do that. The worst thing that they're going to say is, no, there's nothing more that they can do. And you know that you've said to that school that, hey, if you accept us, this is the school that, you know, our son or daughter is going to attend. Right. But that's where that financial fit, you know, you know, comes into play. And I think that that's something that the family needs to, you know, definitely think long and hard about and also have conversations with their student. Right. Um, you know, as I, you know, as I mentioned last night, you know, the family I was working with, the school was going to cost them about $40,000, dollars $40, and it was really eye-opening. And their student really wants to go to that school, and they were like, wow, this isn't necessarily the financial fit that we thought it was going to be. We need to relook at this if this is the best decision for our family to apply or our student, you know, son to go there, ED, knowing that they still could apply regular decision and, you know, he still has the ability to get in regular decision right. too. Right. And and what you're describing is a process of doing your due diligence to sort of assess what that total cost is going to be before you pull the trigger on that ED option. And I think that, you know, in a situation where you've done that research, you've used the net price calculator, you see that you are going to be expected to pay about $15,000 for a particular school. And then you apply ED and you find that circumstances have changed and all of a sudden you're required to pay $40,000 out of pocket. That's a situation where you can go to the admission office, to the dean of admission and say, hey, we, we were expecting totally different numbers. We were in a position where we thought we could afford this. It's, it's much different. But if you're looking at a $40,000, $45,000 cost, you get accepted and that's exactly what they ask you to pay. You can't then say... <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is a lot of money, right? You knew in advance that it was a lot of money. Yeah. And and so there is a a good faith effort I think on the part of families to ensure that the financial expectation is what they are. This is not, you know, a legally binding contract by any means. You know, you're not going to be forced to pay for a college by applying ED, but it is really important that you have good faith in terms of how you approach this because there can be other ramifications both for your your child's high school in terms of future applicants um, and also in just your ability to to ha- maintain a good relationship with that school that you really like long term down the road. Right. Exactly. And I think especially too, when, you know, when they're looking at their options, I mean, if EED isn't right for that student and the, for the family, I mean, there are other options. Uh, many students offer early action, which might be a better option. And then there's always regular decisions. So it's not a matter of not applying to the school and just crossing it off your list, but it's figuring out which application process to go through based on 
financial fit and other other factors too of determining if that school is you know, the right, right school for the student. Now, Beth, we've got about a minute, but I I, I know that there's um you know the NACAC changed that changed their uh, standards and principles of, of good practice uh, last year, and uh, the result of that was that a lot of colleges were suddenly able to offer incentives to ED applicants, which they hadn't been able to do historically. And I think that this might be something that our listeners would be interested in learning more about. In, in about a minute, do you have some examples of some of those incentives that might have been offered to ED applicants? I do. Uh, so some of the incentives that we've seen offered or some uh, schools are offering an additional scholarship. It might be something like $1,000 a year or $2,000 a year. Um, so multiplying that by the four years. Uh, it might be that they're freezing tuition for ED applicants. And so if you're entering in the class and it's $25,000, then you can, you're guaranteed the $25,000 each of those, each of those years over the four years. And then other schools might offer other offers that are not necessarily direct financial incentives, but priority housing, priority classes, priority parking um, to their ED applicants. So families nearly really need to weigh these quote unquote benefits or incentives and weigh them against maybe the downside of comparing offers from other schools. Great. I think that, that that makes a lot of sense. You want to, you know, sort of consider what are just these small sort of fringe offers and what are things that are really significant and how much are these going to make a big difference for you in your process. So, uh, Beth, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is always a piece that I, I, I'm a little uncertain about, and it's great to have your clarity to help our listeners understand it. Thanks, Ian. It's been great uh, speaking with you today and our audience. Wonderful. So folks, that does it for today's show. I want to thank you all for being here with us. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a challenging time out here in the West. Uh, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and the sky is, is orangey yellow. And, and, uh, you know, we've got just sort of all up and down the coast, a lot of tragedy. So, so my uh, thoughts go out to those who are affected by these fires who are being displaced. Uh, I hope that everyone's able to stay safe and healthy um, and out of the, the path of these, these wildfires. Um, we will be back again next week to talk about advice for pre-med students and then to answer your listener questions. So we look forward to welcoming you back here. In the meantime, let's hope for some rain, for some cooler weather, um, and uh, take care this fall. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.